0: We drove the Ute to the eastern suburbs of Melbourne to meet Bindi Cole Choker and talk about her incredible journey. Bindi's childhood was one of loneliness, abuse and neglect, leading her to drug addiction. She would eventually end up in a jail cell in London where she encountered the overwhelming love of Jesus. Now, as a renowned artist, with her works shown in galleries across Australia, she continues to face many challenges in regard to her faith in the art world. Bindi's journey highlights how the love of Jesus reaches into the darkest of places and how he asks us to follow no matter the cost. I'm Carl Faze and this is my interview with Bindi Cole Choker. So, Bindi, what were your early years like?
1: Well, they were pretty tough. I had um, a childhood that was marred by um, a mother who, although she was quite loving and creative and, and, and good in many ways, she was also a heroin addict, a prostitute and a stripper. Wow. And I was an only child and she was a single mother. And so, as I grew up, you can imagine, I was exposed to many things that a little girl shouldn't have been exposed to. And those things included serious neglect, um, abuse, physical and sexual, um, and other things too. And so, it was a tough childhood to mm. be honest, quite lonely and tough and uh, I was moved around from family member to family member too when her addictions became too overwhelming for her.
0: Um, And where was this?
1: This is in St Kilda. So I grew up in St Kilda with my mum. Um, which was, at the time, very different to what it is today. It was really the seedy underbell- underbelly of, of Melbourne. And it still has that, actually. It still has that kind of seedy underbelly, but it's much more wealthy. But when I was living there, it was very much full of boarding houses and single parents and um, very working class. And beautiful place to grow up, actually.
0: Your mum died early for you?
1: She died when I was 16. She didn't die from drugs, which a lot of people think that might have been the case, but she died from uh, cancer. And so actually three years before she died, when I was 13, I had only just moved back in with her. I'd spent four or five years apart from her with different family members. I'd moved back in with her when I was 13 years old. And then when I was 16, she was diagnosed with cancer and it was three months from diagnosis to death. It was very fast. for me that was probably the toughest time of my mm. entire life because I had watched her in those three years come off heroin and make something of herself. She became a writer and she quickly found success. Um, she still smoked marijuana and every day and drank heavily. <laughs> and in that time she actually introduced me to those things. I began smoking daily with her and drinking wow. too. But it was probably, the most stable I had been with her. And then to watch her die quite quickly um, and tragically broke something in me. Mm. Whatever was left was then broken completely.
0: What did you do with yourself? 16, no mum.
1: Well, I was already addicted to drugs when she died. Um, I was using heavily and throughout that last three months I began to use even more heavily and have more wild and erratic behavior she died and I was essentially on my own. My father was in the picture here and there, but not necessarily the kind of support that I needed. Um, And so I quickly found myself in a relationship with a man who dealt drugs and was physically and verbally abusive. I stayed in that for four years as my spirit became more and more broken Mm. and I just used more and more drugs to try to Stop feeling anything. I think I was on a mission to not feel. I made a decision that life sucked and mm. I wasn't going to feel anything ever again.
0: Wow, how did you get out of that? What changed?
1: When I was about twenty-one, I decided that I needed to get out of this relationship. It was going nowhere quickly, and despite my drug usage and this relationship, I actually worked throughout that whole time. At sixteen, I got a job. I think I started at Hungry Jack's, and I ended up at. Um, 17 working at Price Waterhouse. Mm. And I worked at Price Waterhouse until I was 21, um, still smoking marijuana every day and using drugs and um, kind of trying to mask all of that life that I was living, also being a part of a a domestic abuse relationship. But when I was about 21, I realized that I needed to get out of this. I needed something different, I needed to change something, but I didn't quite know how. Mm. And so I broke up with that guy and i bought a ticket to the uk which all young people were kind of doing at that time everybody would go over to england for a year or two you could get a working holiday visa and i got a working holiday visa and i hopped on a plane with twenty dollars in my pocket thinking that i would arrive and life would be better and i would leave all my problems behind of course that was a lie i -hmm. arrived and all my problems came with me and the day that i arrived i found someone to use drugs with the very day i arrived Uh, within a few months, I was living in a house with a drug dealer. I wasn't in a relationship with him, but I was living with him, and I began selling drugs for him in nightclubs in London.
0: Wow. In, in all of this time with your mum growing up, heading to England, faith, Christian faith, was, that, was, was Christian faith or belief any part of your life at all?
1: Not with my mum, not at all. In mm. fact, I would, sh- I would say that she was uh, an atheist, um, almost resenting or hating God, mm-hmm. and she had grown up. Uh, I think she had grown up under Christianity. I think her mother might have attended church and she was baptised, kind of cultural type of Christianity. But she certainly didn't uh, bring that into my world with her. Although when I was eight, I uh, was taken from my mother and given to my, eventually landed on my Aboriginal grandmother's doorstep. And she was a a Christian. And so she went to church every week in South Melbourne. I think it was called St. Luke's. St. Luke's Anglican, and she began to take me to church there on a Sunday. And so for a couple of years, from about 8 till 12, I attended church with mm. her on a Sunday, went to Sunday school. Got, she had me baptised and confirmed. And I don't know that it was something that I really took in at mm. that point. I just went with her and did it, but I, I, I didn't really have an encounter with right. God. But I did have an encounter with some pretty nice people.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: But then when I moved back in with my mum, that all went out the window yeah, yeah. and I kind of picked up that atheism again. In fact, there are times when I just mocked Christians. So I remember um, being a young girl in early high school and seeing some a group of Christians evangelising um, in Footscray and I thought it would be hilarious if I would write 666 on my forehead and run past them hissing, which I did. And So there was that kind of disdain, I suppose. Mm. I think I just thought Christians were weak, victims, unintelligent, needing a crutch, belonging to a cult, all those sorts of things.
0: So you're in London, you're now in a relationship, you're dealing drugs, How, how does that play out?
1: Not very well. So I, yes, I was in London for just over a year uh, progressively, I think because I was now in another country and I was on my own, I, I felt no accountability to anyone or anything. Anything that had maybe prevented me from crossing a particular threshold was gone, and so I gave myself completely over to my addictions, completely. And within a year of being in London, I was 42 kilos. Mm. Um, I had overdosed three times, so I was not using heroin, which my mum had always used. I thought I won't be like her, I'll be different, but I used all the party drugs and so I, sh- I would stay up for two or three nights and it got to the point after a while that my heart couldn't cope and so three times my heart stopped and I had to be raced to hospital and my breathing stopped. and. But as soon as I would come to, I would just start using again. I also began to go into a a drug-induced psychosis, which where my brain would kind of flip out from usage and not sleeping. And I remember getting to a point where I thought, if something doesn't happen, I'm going to die. Like I just knew, it was like I felt death on me. I Mm -hmm. knew that my body couldn't take another overdose. And it was at that point that I began to try to get some help for myself.
0: Mm. So, I, so in that situation, you didn't actually want to die, but you just felt you were in this hole and you couldn't get out.
1: I think part of me, up until confronting the fact of actual death, I, I thought I wanted to die. Mm. But then when it was at my doorstep, I realised, no, mm. I wanted to live. Yeah. And I wanted to do something to make that happen. And... I approached a a couple of rehabs, but because I was not, um, because I was in England, uh, I couldn't get a place. And and I remember thinking to myself, well, this is it. I can't stop. I couldn't stop what I was doing. I'd wake up every morning thinking, this is the day. And then I would, by that evening, be using again. And I remember thinking, this is it, it's over. And then came this moment where I was in a room by myself and I was thinking about these things, how hopeless life was, how I was about to check out. When for the very first time in my life, even though I'd been to church and had some experiences with Christianity, I heard God's voice and it was loud and it was clear and it was repetitive. And he said to me over and over and over, call out to my son, call out to my son, call out to my son. And what I didn't realise at the time was that's actually biblical, mm-hmm. that no one comes to the Father except yep. through Jesus. Yep. And I did. I fell on my knees and I said, help me, Jesus. And within a week of that moment, I was arrested for selling drugs and locked up in
0: prison. Now, you wouldn't <laughs> have thought that was the no. answer you were expecting. No. Uh, so what, what difference, did that, I mean, clearly being arrested and put in jail is not a great outcome, it wouldn't seem like it, but what was happening there?
1: Yeah, well, that's right, and I hope that never happens to anybody else when you call out to Jesus, but for me, um, it was exactly what I needed. Yeah. I needed to be pulled out of life, and from the moment that I walked into that first prison cell, I remember walking through the door of this cell, and it wasn't even in a jail, it was in the police cells, and was like the Holy Spirit hit me in the face. It was like, whew, straight away. I walked in and I knew that I wasn't alone. I knew that Jesus was in the cell. And I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that it was over, that the life that I had lived was finished. I had run so hard and so fast from the pain of my life that I'd ended up in a tiny cell on the other side of the world alone with Jesus. And I knew that this was my opportunity for things to change.
0: This podcast is brought to you by the ministry of Olive Tree Media. Our vision is to create a library of resources that tell the story of the game-changing message of Jesus. This interview was recorded for our latest documentary, Faith Runs Deep. Our other award-winning series, Jesus the Game Changer and Towards Belief, plus many other small group, church and school series are available on our Watch Plus platform for a small monthly partnership. As you partner with us, you not only get access to compelling video content and interactive discussion guides, but you also support the creation of more resources that help share the gospel message. To become a partner and get access to Faith Runs Deep, visit olivetreemedia.com.au. You're in a cell, that was it in London? Yes. So you're in a jail cell in London and, and you feel like you're totally alone, except you've got the Spirit of God with you, but you also had help from other people. Who was helping you?
1: Right. So once I got out of the the, uh, police cell and I was put in remand into the prison, Mm. um, I ended up spending eight months in remand in a prison called Holloway in London, which was in North London. And not long after arriving in Holloway, I put myself onto maybe a week or two onto the rehab wing. Finally, I got the rehab that I needed in prison. And... Within days of being on the rehab wing, I met through my little hatch, knock on the hatch, and it opened and there was a woman called Betty and another woman called Anita, and they were from prison fellowship. And they began to talk to me through Mm. the hatch, almost on a daily basis. And they just listened to me pour my heart out to them and cry and tell them my story and all my sorrows and all my woes and all my pain. And they would just respond by telling me how loved I was. I was so loved, I was so valuable. And I'd never really heard that before in my life, Mm. in that way. And, you know, I can talk about my past and it doesn't make me emotional. But when I think about those times when God reached into that dark place like that grace of God that makes me emotional because I was there and I was alone and I was scared and these women came and they just shared the love of Christ with me and it began to slowly transform me Mm -hmm. and so um, within a month of being in jail I with them had given my life to Jesus And for the first time in my life, I knew that I was profoundly and deeply loved.
0: Wow. So you call out to God. Oddly enough, you end up in jail. And it's actually people who are following Jesus that come to jail in that setting and make such a difference in your life.
1: Absolutely. And I so think that that's what people who serve Jesus do. And it's not even on them to save me. I had had an encounter with God. I knew he was real. I didn't know what to do with that encounter. And then they came along and they outworked what I needed. They they led me and took me by the hand and led me into the next steps of my walk with Jesus. And, you know, I'm so grateful to them. And they don't even know the fruit of their years of ministry of what they've done. They have no idea. They don't know where I am today. They don't know where my life is at, that I'm completely transformed and healed and whole and living my life serving Jesus. They know none of that. They just faithfully came into prison every week and shared the love of Christ and probably never really saw any fruit from it, but I'm their fruit. I'm the fruit of their beautiful prison ministry.
0: So you end up back in Australia, so how did you get back here?
1: I got deported, so I was in jail. Uh, So I ended up getting sentenced to four years in prison. And I served two years and because of good behaviour got my parole after two years, which meant that I was picked up from the prison, Um, escorted to the airport, locked up in the airport until a plane was ready for me and then I was escorted onto the plane before anybody even, uh, was any passenger was aboard. And sitting on that plane after two years in prison, that was my first taste of freedom. I was alone, I had no one around me watching me, I wasn't shackled, we would get shackled if we were taken out of the prison. And I remember people getting on, began to get on the Actually, just before that happened, the cabin crew came to me and they said to me, We know where you've come from and we don't want any trouble from you. And I said to them, I'm not going to be any trouble. I just want to go home. And I think that kind of opened the floodgates. I began to cry. Tears, just not like loud, ugly crying, just kind of beautiful tears streaming down my face. But I couldn't stop. It was like this floodgates opened and this release began to happen and then people get on the plane and we take off and we hit altitude and the guy next to me, I'm still crying and I'm thinking, he's thinking, oh my gosh, I can't believe I've ended up next to this girl who won't stop crying. And he says to me, are you okay? And I said, I'm fine, I'm just ready to go home. And he said, I've got something that will help you relax. And he pulled out a small handful of Valium and he gave it to me and I took it and I put it in my pocket. Anyway, He then got up to go to the toilet or somewhere, and while he was gone, he must have gone to speak to the cabin crew about me. While he was gone, they came to me again, two people came to me, and they were walking down the aisle looking at me, and I knew they were coming to me. And because I had a prison mentality, like two years in prison, it actually changes you. You do become institutionalized. I thought, they know about the Valium, I'm in trouble. And they said come with me and so I got up and I went with them to the galley and they turned around and they said to me Miss Cole that's my maiden name we can see that you're not going to be any trouble and we can see how deeply upset you are so we're going to upgrade you to business class (laughs) (laughs) and they put me in business class and I got deported home in business class And I think to this day, I realise that it's just God again. He was just saying, I'm going to take care of you. You know, I've got you. I've got the rest of your life. I'm going to take care of you.
0: Let's go back in your story. And you talked about the Indigenous background in your family. Was that something you were always, were you always aware of your Indigenous background? And how did that influence you?
1: I was always aware of it. Uh, My father and my grandmother is uh, Wadawurrung, which is from the Kulin Nations here in Victoria. It's the Western part of Victoria. And I always knew from the day that I can remember that I had Aboriginal heritage. Um, and then I, of course, I went to live with my Aboriginal grandmother. And it was during that time that she was researching her genealogy. And I watched her, she knew she was, her mother was black. Okay, clearly I'm not black, clearly I have mixed heritage, but her mother was black, my great grandmother. And so she knew that she was Aboriginal, but she had died without knowing exactly which part of Victoria she was from. So I watched her over a couple of years do all this research and saw how much it kind of strengthened her to know exactly where she was from. It turns out that her mother was Wadawurrung, she had been born on Framingham Mission, there was this really strong, beautiful connection to the First Nations in Victoria and so she then made me feel proud of that while I was living with her too and she would go to the local Victorian Elders Centre called ACES and I would go with her and she was plugged into the community and so just I I guess it was something that was always a part of who I was and it got strengthened as I went along.
0: An odd way of saying this but you're an accomplished and serious artist and your, your work has been shown all across Australia and bought by galleries across Australia. Where did art start in your life?
1: I guess it started with my mum because she was a writer mm. and I watched her write and I would sit with her in our sunroom in our little house in in Yarraville we'd move to Yarraville once I moved back in with her and she would work she worked for a, a small independent theatre company called Melbourne Workers Theatre and she would write plays she was commissioned to write plays and I would sit there with her and she, I would help her with the language and if she wanted to do something conversational we would work it out together and and i was a part of that um, theater world i would go and see her plays i would go see, she was obsessed with theater and so i'd go see lots of plays i would i acted in some of her plays and so it started there but then it all got waylaid once she died and then when i was in prison i realized that for me to um, kind of be sane I suppose. I needed a creative outlet yeah. and I decided then that when I got out I would um, do some type of art and within a year of getting out of prison I was studying photography at TAFE. I then went and did a fine arts degree and since then a doctorate too. Wow. <laughs> yes, in that's, arts. A, that's
0: a long way from, uh, if I can use the word, a hopeless uh, drug, drug the individual in London in jail to a doctorate in fine arts. It's outstanding. And your art, as we've said, has been shown all over our nation. Um, You end up in a court case around both your art and your indigenous heritage. What was that?
1: Well, uh, when I first graduated from photography school, I made a series of photographs. It was the second series I'd ever made and it was of myself and my family uh, in blackface. I probably naively underestimated the impact this would have at the time. Although I do think given the life I'd lived, it's not surprising that I err on the side of shock and Mm -hmm. awe, or Mm -hmm. that I'm comfortable there maybe. Mm -hmm. But I made this series and it was really about um, acknowledging that many people identify as Aboriginal from fair-skinned to dark-skinned and that it's an unco- it can be an uncomfortable space for a lot of people. And oftentimes when you acknowledge your Aboriginal heritage, people can downplay it, which is at odds with how you feel about it. You mm. can, you know, when I was growing up, it was the only part of my racial heritage that was actively acknowledged. Mm. So it played a bigger part in my mind than it probably did biologically. And so I made this series and uh, I somehow roped my family into it and they agreed, they probably deeply regret it now, but I did because they got it. They got what I was trying to say, that they're so proud of who they are. and. I think I was trying to visually turn us into the stereotype of what I thought people wanted to see as First Nations people. Anyway, before the exhibition had even opened, um, via the press release, it was seen by um, Andrew Bolt, who is Australia's probably foremost conservative commentator, Mm. and he wrote a blog on it. just talking about or highlighting and asking why why we acknowledge parts of our racial heritage that are obviously in my case only a part of my racial heritage, why do we do that and in hindsight it's probably a fair question, I think, but at the time i didn 't really understand where he was coming from also um, I had no, I I didn't really understand politics. I didn't understand free speech. I didn't understand all of these kind of philosophies that I do now or political Mm. philosophies that I do now. And he began to keep writing about me multiple times in ways that weren't flattering. And I never spoke to him. And so I remember after a while I was approached by uh, a law firm asking if I would like to join with a number of other prominent Indigenous people who he would write about as being fair-skinned but Aboriginal um, and take him to court. And at the time I thought, yes, I do. I wanna do that because I wanna defend my character. Mm. What I had done in making those artworks was actually a genuine expression of where I was at the time, naive perhaps, but Mm. absolutely genuine. And what I didn't realise was that the court case that I was entering into, it wasn't even necessarily about me defending my character. It was actually about free speech. Mm. It was a very, um, it was a a case that would set a precedent around limiting speech based on feelings. Mm. Um, And I didn't realize that. Sure. Right, so so I guess everybody has their agendas, right? Yeah, yeah. And so I had mine and they had theirs and they had theirs. And uh, I eventually went to court after two years. It took two years to arrive in federal court, I was one of only two of the eight Mm -hmm. who actually testified in federal court. I actually had to sit Mm -hmm. there and give my, and my my artworks were shown and questioned as to what my motivation was for making them. And in the end, we won. And Andrew Bolt was, I guess, publicly declared a racist Mm. for bringing these conversations to the public.
0: Now, in that process, that would seem like how wonderful you've won. You've put Andrew Bolton in his place, but there was another underlying kind of subtext happening for you, wasn't there?
1: There was. And so I had had this massive encounter with God. I had gone to prison where I had given my life to Jesus and I began to outwork a, a walk of faith. When I arrived back in Australia, I didn't quite know what to do with that faith and those encounters, and the supernatural experiences mm. that I'd had, plus the, the love of God that I'd received. I kind of put it all to one side and thought, maybe there's something easier than Christianity that will make me feel the same way. Because actually in prison for the first time, I, I felt free mm. and loved. But when I got out, I don't think I wanted to pay the social cost of being a Christian, mm. which I was keenly aware of because I'd looked at Christianity from the outside in my whole life. And so I thought, I'll try other things but nothing satisfied in the same way and as i began to get some success and of course andrew bolt's attention on my artwork actually catapulted my practice Mm. to a national level straight away and while people one set of people derided what I was doing and hated it, another set, which included the art world, loved that work, loved what it stood for, loved it in its entirety. And it began to go national and began to get all these opportunities. And I began to climb this kind of mountain of artistic success. But as I was doing that, alongside that, I'm feeling less and less satisfied. I'm realizing that even as I'm having success, I'm dissatisfied by it. And that in fact, I felt a lot better in prison with Jesus. Mm. And so slowly I'm beginning to turn back to my faith. And um, almost as the court case was announced and we'd won, was the same time as I walked through the door of a church for the first time since getting out of prison Mm. and really was on my knees again, desperate for God again.
0: In the middle of that, which is a a remarkable story, you actually did a couple of videos that Andrew Bolt saw. Um, What was his response?
1: Well, we then move forward a few years. I then take my artistic practice and begin to use it as a way to process my faith. And so Mm. I start making work about Jesus, about my faith, about tension points within my walk with Jesus. And as I'm doing that, I'm beginning to read a lot and research and understand philosophical things and political philosoph- uh, philosophies and i'm changing in so many ways i'm being transformed from the mm-hmm. inside out um, spiritually i'm deciding that i want to give my whole life to jesus i'm learning all of this new information and i'm really going through a massive growth and change and as i do that i i make some videos that are, that are about my um, I guess my shift in political stances. Mm.
0: Mm.
1: And in one of those videos I talk about how this court case in some ways was the catalyst into my research of politics and understanding where things lie and how they sat. And I didn't even understand that there were different perspectives. I was very naive. I'd just been in this bubble for so many years as you would be given the life that I'd lived. And I made this video and said that this court case was the catalyst. I had changed my mind on things from back Mm -hmm. then that I now really appreciated free speech and thought it was very important that we uphold this value. Um, And he saw that. So this this was now about seven years later and he saw that video. And in the lead up to those videos, I also knew, I had a sense I regretted taking him to court. Mm. It wasn't... I regretted using the law that we used, the Racial Discrimination Act. I think maybe in hindsight, had I wanted to take him to court, I could have taken him to court for defamation Mm. because that's what I wanted to do to, to defend my character. But we had used this law that cemented these... Limitations on free speech based on feelings, and I had realised that I had helped to build this structure around limiting free speech that I now wanted to tear down. I regretted taking him to court using those laws. I now didn't think that he was a racist. I thought that he's provocative, mm. he's definitely provocative, but he's speaking about things that we need to speak about oftentimes, and I regretted it. And so he ended up seeing this video, and he called me directly. So this is now seven, seven years later. Wow. He called me, and it was the first time we'd actually ever spoken. Mm. And that day on the phone, I apologized to him for taking him to court using the Racial Discrimination Act. Um, he apologized to me for the things that he had said about me and my character, and we reconciled. Wow. And he invited me onto his show, I couldn't do it for a few weeks, but he invited me onto his show. The next day he even wrote an article publicly apologizing to me for the things that he'd said. And I ended up going on his show and we publicly reconciled. We did it privately Mm -hmm. first and then we publicly reconciled. And I was able to even testify to him that it was because of Jesus and the power of God and my understanding now of forgiveness and mercy and grace and not judging people that I had come this full kind of circle around to thinking that I had made a mistake in taking him to court and now, and forgiving him and wanting his forgiveness too.
0: So we would look at that now and go, wow, that's a great thing. I'm not sure that would have been an universally popular choice.
1: <laughs> no, well, that was the end of my arts career. Is that right? Yes. Well,
0: so what happened? What was the response <laughs> to the art community to that and your own faith?
1: Yes. So up until that point, even though I hadn't been making works that acknowledged my faith, they were still kind of universal messages and so they could be taken very subjectively. At that point, it was very clear the change that had gone on me what that meant um, in terms of ideologies and philosophies and I had up until that point for a decade or maybe eight years been in on average 10 exhibitions a year Mm -hmm. for almost a decade from that moment which was November 2018 of appearing on his show I haven't been in an exhibition since and it's now 2022.
0: So clearly that's not about your ability with art
1: no. and
0: creativity. Clearly that's about a political position. Correct. Yeah. And so
1: then I've then done a doctorate which I've written about. <laughs> I've then explored these kind of um, leanings and biases within the art world and uh, was able to have a, a great opportunity actually to really get all of that out and look deeply into it.
0: Um, but you're... You're still creative. You're still creating uh, works of art that have a, a fairly clear message as well. Around the time of uh, Kevin Rudd doing an apology to the Indigenous of our nation, you created some artworks around that. What were they?
1: So that was before this all happened. Mm. This was in um, 2014. Yep. I uh, I myself, once I had discovered that I was profoundly and deeply loved by God in prison then getting out making art kind of turning my back on God but then coming back I had a different revelation Mm. this time when I was on my knees again around 2010 at the same time as the court case I was calling out to God and rather than show me that I was profoundly loved by him he actually (laughs) he brought me to a place of repentance so up until that point even though I was Aware that God was real and that I was loved, I still saw myself as the victim. I could justify everything. I would say, you know, I. Yes, I've been to prison and I doubt drugs, but look at my life. Why wouldn't I? Um, all these. I had. I was not a nice person, but you know, that's justified, and so I could justify all my atrocious behaviour. At this point, God showed me gently. That, I needed forgiveness. And I spent probably two years crying (laughs) privately as he washed me clean with this forgiveness. And as he did, that's when the true transformation in life, my life Mm -hmm. began to occur, began to be healed. There was no woundedness anymore. Um, I began to go through a process of forgiving All the people from my life, from when I was born up until that point, I just would systematically go through and forgive and forgive and forgive. And as I did that, I became so free and so whole. And so when I saw Kevin Rudd's apology, it made me think about um, the Aboriginal community and how broken it is and how perhaps what's needed is not justice. Uh, nor blame, nor constantly focusing on what's happened, but a huge move of forgiveness within the community towards the country and towards the past and what's happened. Mm. And that through that, actually, healing would come. Mm. And so when he apologised, I noticed that there was no response. Usually when someone says, I'm sorry, you say, I forgive you. Mm. And that's when the healing occurs. It's the two things together. It's not just the apology. You have to respond. And so I made an artwork at that time with my husband. I was married at this point and which was made out of 25,000 emu feathers, which we lovingly hand stuck each one onto a huge template that was 10 meters long that says, I forgive you. So we hand stuck the 25,000 emu feathers in the garage over three months. And prayed over it daily and it got picked up by the Queensland Gallery of Modern Art and taken up there and purchased actually and displayed and it's since travelled around quite a bit but that was my response to Kevin Rudd's apology.
0: Wow. This series is called Faith Runs Deep. From your study, experience, thinking, how do you see faith running deep in Australia?
1: I think, I guess you know if you look at somebody like myself who at times in my life was exposed to faith um, but it didn't really take um, but now lives my life serving god entirely for faith and for the faith of others and for my own faith i think that god no matter what no matter how secular this country becomes no matter what philosophies and ideologies we take on board and run with, faith is always going to be at the heart of this country. Mm. It's founded on it. It will, it, we, live, we live under the blessing and favor of faith, of many, many generations of prayer, I believe my grandmother prayed for me. I believe I'm the fruit of prison ministry and prayers of generations gone before me in this country. And in that way, no matter where we go or where we head, the faith will always run deep and there will always be people who are generationally Christian and people like me who have these radical conversions to Christianity that entirely transform their lives. Mm -hmm. And I believe is going to actually then bear fruit to transform the communities around me.
0: Thank you for joining me on this podcast as I unearth stories of faith in Australia. To watch the full Faith Runs Deep series and all Olive Tree Media content, go to olivetreemedia.com.au and sign up to the Watch Plus platform and partner with us today.